Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, election footing. By-elections are called in four ridings across the country. Could the People's Party of Canada get its first elected MP in Maxime Bernier? And do the Greens stand a chance in the riding once held by Marc Garneau? We will speak to our strategists. Also... The situation felt to be challenging, so I'm glad you're going As the Prime Minister meets with Canadian forces in Alberta, we check in with the provincial campaign, now entering its third week. Coming up, we'll speak to two journalists who are covering the Alberta election. And... Addressing sexual misconduct and racism in the armed forces. We will speak with Lieutenant General Jen Carignan. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. The Green Party's deputy leader will try to win a seat in the House of Commons. Over the weekend, it was announced four by-elections will be held on June 19th. We know Maxime Bernier, the People's Party leader, will run in Portage-Lisgur. And now the Greens' Jonathan Pedno says he will run in Notre-Dame-de-Grasse-Westmount. Well, to talk about the by-elections, we're now joined by Carlene Varian. She is Associate Vice President at Summa Strategies. Gary Keller is Vice President at Strategy Corps in Ottawa. And Kim Wright is Principal at Wright Strategies. Hello to the three of you. Hello. Great to be with you. Now, listen, these four seats are considered safe seats by their respective parties. And I definitely want to talk about both Jonathan Pedno and Maxime Bernier in a bit. But let's talk about by-elections writ large. How important are these by-elections for the parties to, to at least test out their campaign machinery? Uh, Carlene, I'll get you to start us out since we know the prime minister will be asking Canadians for a fourth mandate. Well, we certainly got confirmation of that at the Liberal Party's biennial convention a couple of weekends ago where the Prime Minister gave uh, a speech that said in no uncertain terms, uh, I'm staying, I'm going to take on Pierre Poiliev. Um, By-elections are a useful tool for parties in in both situations where the outcome is relatively known as well as um, by-elections that are tight races. And we do see those from time to time. As you mentioned, Michael, the four coming up are not necessarily that. I think they will be most valuable for the Conservative Party in terms of field operations, communications, their GOTV strategy, uh, because they're the party that have had the most recent significant turnover of senior staff and infrastructure. I think you can expect to see the Liberals and the NDP use their standard playbook that they've been applying in the last number of elections. Um, and, uh, and so it will be most most interesting to watch what the Conservatives do. We got a little bit of a taste of that um, in the Mississauga by-election just before Christmas. Um, and uh, in that one, we didn't see the new leader, Pierre Poliev, have much of a role at all. So I think what we'll be watching for in these four by-elections is whether he makes stops in those ridings or not. Okay, then Gary, let me bring you in because, you know, as Carlene says, the last by-election was the riding of Mississauga Lakeshore. Uh, That was last December. Conservatives came a distant second. So how important are these by-elections for Pierre Poliev? Well, it's a good question because the four by-elections in and of themselves, to Carlene's point, they really aren't in question. They're all four very safe liberal seats, or sorry, very safe seats, uh, one liberal 
uh, and uh, too liberal African, too conservative. Uh, and so for the for the two safe conservative seats, you know, they already have strong infrastructure in the ground on place there, good local teams in place. Um, but, you know, to Carlene's point as well, there's been a lot of turnover at national office. And uh, really, that uh, that Lakeshore by-election really wasn't uh, a great test because Pierre Collier had only been leader for a short period of time. The infrastructure, you know, they, they hadn't really started to uh, fix that infrastructure. Now they've had a new executive director in place, some new people on the party side. And it's a, it's a good testing ground to test some messaging and to test some party machinery. Uh, but make no mistake, all of these uh, seats uh, that the by-election would call in are safe seats. So uh, great for fine-tuning, but probably not more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kim, what, what would you say about these by-elections and how they, they fare or how important they are for the parties? Well, I would disagree with my colleagues here to say that this is not going to be a sleepy campaign. Maxime Bernier running in, in Portage Lisker uh, has already laid down the gauntlet calling Pierre Polyev's conservatives fake conservatives and that you can, uh, you know, elect somebody where it doesn't really matter because they're not going to be part of the government. And, and so he's actually trying to rile up his PPC base, which can be when, when, uh, weaponized, I suppose, for lack of a better word, uh, quite interesting. In the conservative side, the candidate there, his name is uh, Brandon, uh, he actually has used a bit of a U.S. Uh, slang. I, you know, his uh, his social media post was, let's go, Brandon. And so, which is a bit of a I, I don't know how politely I can say F you Biden uh, is the way that they kind of frame it in the U.S. So is this a whisper campaign? Is this dog whistle politics as usual? So that's going to be fascinating. How who's going to out conservative and out real quote unquote conservative? Then you also had Pierre Polyev going into Oxford uh, last week and uh, doing his now infamously mocked uh, mud on his boots uh, in Pearson Airport uh, uh, video, where he said phrases like, I was out with the common people at their festivals, which doesn't really exactly scream man of the people out meeting folks. So uh, I think that there was a reason that Pierre Polyev stayed out of Mississauga Lakeshore last time. And that's frankly, once they started seeing the numbers of how Pierre Polyev uh, engaged or didn't uh, with voters in a meaningful way, uh, it, it impacted his polling. What we'll always see on by-elections, and Elizabeth May is, the, is always the standard, can you start to gain traction, uh, as Elizabeth May did coming in second in the 06 London by-election that some viewers might remember? That was her uh, coming out party, for lack of a better word. So this is an opportunity to test messaging in multiple provinces, machinery in multiple provinces, and work the kinks out. But I suspect all of these campaigns are looking to get a lot more headlines. Okay, listen, I got to barrel through a few questions here because I do want to touch on a few points. But Gary, pick up on that because you, you, you know when Kim is right, Maxime Bernier has called Poliev a fake conservative. What kind of impact will the People's Party leader actually have on Poliev's uh, right flank? Well, look, Max Bernier is desperate for attention, desperate for votes. He's quickly becoming the John C. Turmel of Canadian politics. That's a guy who's run in like 58 straight elections in Canada and lost them all. And I suspect Max is going to do the same in, in Portage Lisgar. I mean, for goodness sakes, he couldn't even pronounce the name of the riding correctly when he was uh, doing his campaign launch. But there's a reason why he chose that riding to run in and not any of the other ridings to run in. And that's because in the general election in 2021, the People's Party struck 
struck 20% in that riding, not with Max Bernier, but with another local candidate. And I think that was a bit of a different moment in time. Clearly, there was a lot of frustration in that sort of rural Manitoba, uh, strongly socially conservative uh, riding of people that were fed up around COVID mandates. Uh, there was a lot of issues raised with uh, the shutting down of church services in churches. And in the cons recent conservative nomination, you can't ignore the fact that Brandon Leslie, the conservative candidate, defeated the sitting finance minister of the government of Manitoba, a conservative, Cameron Friesen. Can't ignore that. And there's a reason why that happened, because he directly tied Mr. Friesen's record as part of the PC government of Manitoba with COVID lockdowns, the lockdown of churches, the lockdown of small businesses to say, that's your record. I'm not that kind of conservative. And so it's hard for Maxine Bernier to go in and say, well, you know, fake conservative when you have a guy who has good traction on the ground, has clearly shown that he's not afraid of taking on a big name. Um, and so I think Max is going to be a lot of bluster in this campaign, but not much more than that. I'd be surprised if he got double digits in this campaign. Okay, Carlene, uh, do you think Maxime Bernier stands a chance in the riding? Not at all. Um, to be blunt, uh, for all the reasons Gary stated, he's going to have a real challenge. But you add to that, um, this is a this is a guy from to be really blunt. This is a guy from Quebec with a relatively thick French accent that's coming into a rural prairie riding and expecting to um, connect with people. Um, I'm just not sure that that's a match that's going to have a lot of success. Um, and uh, yes, opposition to pandemic measures is a real thing in this riding, but uh, I, that has not been an issue that has as much. Uh, relevance or um, uh, or interested by voters uh, that the way that it did in 2021. Um, so uh, no, I don't see that being uh, a real force in this campaign at all. It will provide a little bit of distraction for the Conservative Party of Canada's campaign and that they'll have to be looking over their shoulder and paying attention to what he's doing. But do I think that they really have to worry about their hold on this writing? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, you know, that leaves Jonathan Pedno, and I'm really losing a, a time here quickly, so I apologize. But uh, Kim, I'll leave this one to you because, as I said, Pedno is running in the riding once held by Mark Garneau. Any thoughts on that strategy or what the Greens have at stake with this by-election? Well, they have all sorts of things at stake, and including, you know, who will you know, be on that leaders debate stage come the general election. Uh, will Elizabeth May do it or someone else? Uh, will she let go of those reins long enough? So it'll be interesting to see. I'm actually really excited. The New Democrats actually have a contested nomination. They're nominating their candidate tomorrow evening and uh, can't wait to can't, can't wait to see that. You know, we, we want to see on the campaign trail how these various parties are resonating on the ground. How is their local machinery and how, you know, can they can they pull through? in Quebec versus uh, versus Manitoba because you have to win a nationwide mandate. So that's kinds of things I'll be looking for at this point. Okay, well, uh, we have about a month to the actual by-election date itself. But for now, Carlene, Gary, Kim, thank you for that. Really appreciate the insight tonight. Thank you. Great to be with you. The Prime Minister is now on his way to Seoul, South Korea, but before departing for Asia, he did land in Alberta to meet Canadian Forces personnel who are currently helping with wildfire relief efforts in the province. With no rain expected for another week, officials say the situation remains dangerous and the provincial state of emergency still stands. 
Of course, all of this is happening as the provincial campaign continues in Alberta. It's been two weeks since the writ was dropped, which means we're now at the halfway mark before voting day. And to talk about this, we're now joined by Jen Gerson, co-founder of The Line, and Alex Boyd, reporter with the Toronto Star's Calgary Bureau. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hi. Uh, Alex, I'm going to get you start us off because the wildfire situation has allowed Danielle Smith to, really to showcase her leadership skills while in crisis. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound insensitive regarding what is really happening with people's lives here, but has that actually helped Danielle Smith's campaign? I think in some ways it's an opportunity. I mean, natural disasters in a lot of ways are an opportunity, if not an obligation for leaders to stand up and show that they have what it takes to lead. I don't think it's totally a coincidence that some of the Alberta leaders that are best known on the national stage are, are folks whose reputations have been really forged in disaster. So people like former Mayor Nive Nenshi, um, who got a huge visibility booth um, during the Calgary floods, people like Rachel Notley, um, who really got a lot of um, attention during the Fort McMurray fires. Um, and so it really is an opportunity for leaders to be seen in a new and authoritative light. Um, of course, it's not just posturing. There are almost 20,000 Albertans who can't go home right now who are facing uh, evacuation orders. Um, I'm in Calgary today. It's very hot for May. It's only going to get hotter this week. So this really is a serious situation that needs to be dealt with. And so in some ways, it's an opportunity. I also think it's put Smith under the, the political um put her in the hot spot a little bit in ways that she maybe didn't, wouldn't like to see um, uh, on the other hand. So things like uh, in 2019, the United Conservatives cut funding for what's called the RAP attack team, which is like an elite firefighting force where they dangle people out of uh, helicopters and put them into firefighting situations before these fires get out of control. And that's a decision that I think a lot of Albertans had largely forgotten about, but which is under fresh scrutiny this week. Um, and of course, the question of climate change. Um, we know that fires like this are getting more common, they're getting bigger out here in Western Canada. And so that puts that question back on politicians um, of, are we ready for this? Are we doing enough to, to deal with some of these impacts? Um, and these are the sorts of questions that I, I would imagine Smith is not loving having to answer two weeks before an election. Mm -hmm. So that's that's Danielle Smith. Of course, the Prime Minister does come uh, to the area. He does visit natural disasters when they, they happen. So no surprise, he's in Alberta. But I wonder, Jen, does his visit affect the campaign in any way because last time around Jason Kenney really made made a big deal of tying Rachel Notley with the Prime Minister. Yeah, uh, to be honest with you, this campaign's been very distinct from the from the 2019 campaign in really interesting ways. I don't think that, um, to be honest, the, the wildfires have been the dominating question coming out of this election campaign, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is that as big as the fires are. Um, you know, in terms of the number of people displaced or the amount of potential damage to human lives and human properties, it's actually not the biggest we've seen in, in recent years. Um, interestingly, it seems to me like there's much more attention from the rest of Canada on the wildfire situation here than in previous years. But the Fort Mac fires and I believe in 2016 and the Slave Lake fires were both much, much more damaging, both in terms of the number of people who were affected and the amount of damage that they did to physical property and structure. So, um, you know, and also, uh, as Alex pointed out, I mean, this, we are heading into this being a new normal. This is um, early May being a wildfire season in Alberta is, is, is increasingly just getting kind of baked into our understanding of the seasons. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the wildfires uh, have been an interesting opportunity for the, for the leaders, but I don't think that they've overshadowed 
the continual gaffes that that Daniel Smith has been suffering during this election. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, let me pick up on that point, because I also want to get your reaction to the poll that was released this weekend by Abacus Data, a survey that mm -hmm. shows the NDP very much in the lead. Uh, what do you make of those numbers? Uh, Alex, I'll get you to start. Sure. I mean, there's the evergreen disclaimer that a poll is just a snapshot in time. It's a relatively small group of people. I think in this case, they talked to 800 voters. Um, so anyone who thinks that the election is over with two weeks to go, I, you know, I hate to break it to you, but we, we, we might see some changes between now and Election Day. Um, what is interesting about these numbers is that the snapshot in time that they are looking at um, was a, a very uh, fiery one here in Alberta. Uh, this polling was done in the days after um, some comments from, from Smith were publicly revealed in which she appeared to compare people who've been vaccinated for COVID with people who follow Hitler. And so, you know, Smith is obviously someone who has a long track record record of making some might say blunt comments, others might say very controversial comments. Um, but even for her, even in that context, uh, these particular comments have, have really hit a nerve. They've upset a lot of people. Um, and that has been, I think, a question for, for a lot of folks is, is this something that is going to actually stick to her in a way that some of her past comments have not? And so this is kind of the first glimpse of what public perception could be doing. Um, again, I had this conversation with Janet Brown last week, who's a very well-known pollster. She wasn't, I believe, involved in this poll, but she's a uh, she's a very reputable pollster here in the province. And she made the comment that sometimes when you ask people a question in the wake of an event, they react emotionally, they uh, react with anger. And so sometimes when they've had a little bit of time to cool down or to process, um, they may end up voting differently than what they initially told the poll. So again, um, I don't know that this poll is, you know, uh, the end of the road for us in Alberta, but it's an interesting look um, at an interesting period in time. But, you know, Alberta elections, there's lots of twists and turns. We got two weeks to go in Alberta election time. That's years. And so, um, yeah, it's not over here. Uh, Jen, what do you make of the, the number that we, we saw from Abacus this weekend? Uh, well, I mean, I have a sort of a, a famous instinctual distrust of polling, and that has nothing to do with the fact the fact that I married a pollster. But <laughs> <laughs> read into that whatever you want to read into that. Um, but to be blunt, I, I mean, it is just one snapshot. It's one poll. What's interesting about the poll is, is that it is showing or suggesting that undecideds, undecideds are starting to break to the NDP, um, particularly in places like Calgary. That could be a death knell for, for um, the UCP if it continues. I don't know how that's reflective or fits in with uh, internal polling. Um, judging by the level of sort of chaos and fear that I can sort of sense coming from the UCP candidate, or sorry, the UCP campaign, my, my feeling is that they know things aren't going particularly well for them. And if the NDP manages to drop these gaffes on like say 36 hour intervals from now for the next two weeks, um, it, it's anybody's game. Now, I do think that as far as polling goes, we are going to see this election track much more closely to what we saw in 2012, which is that most decisions are actually going to get made in the last 24 to 48 hours before actual E-Day. So, uh, you know, I, nobody is making predictions about who, who's going to come out on top here, because I actually think that we have a, a very uncertain and, and, and divided and um, uh, fearful electorate. And that means that the, the final decisions are going to come down to, to really the last few hours of this election. Okay, well, we will keep following, and uh, I'm sure the three of us will speak again. But for now, Jen Gerson, Alex Boyd, thank you very much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you. 
Two years ago, our next guest was put in charge of reforming Canada's military culture, a role created after allegations of sexual misconduct implicated officers at the highest level of the Canadian forces. And it is not just sexual misconduct that she's now looking into, but also allegations of misogyny and racism. And to discuss the challenge at hand, we're now joined by Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan, Chief of Professional Conduct and Culture at the Canadian Armed Forces. General, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Michael. Glad to be here. Alyssa, first and foremost, I want to talk about just how widespread misogyny and racism is in the armed forces. Uh, two years into the job, are you able to, to, to answer that question? So I, I think um, what we are currently doing in terms of uh, culture and professional conduct is having a, a holistic look at, at what actually is at the root causes of uh, misconducts. We understand uh, that misconduct is a symptom and strictly going after misconduct is not um, is not necessarily the way to deliver the climate and the environment free of uh, discrimination, misogyny or or, uh, or hateful conduct. So really, uh, we are they are taking a, a whole different approach uh, this time around. So a different approach. What was it then within military culture that allowed these things to go unchallenged? So what we have seen is, is uh, we have actually gone out uh, in the first year of uh, my mandate to directly consult. Um, so 9,000 members plus of the defense team, uh, public service, military reservists, uh, did they respond to our uh, consultations. And, and what we wanted to identify that there is, is how does our culture work? Um, what has been absolutely key to our finding is that we found that our culture is informed by four uh, pillars. Uh, the first one is leadership. Uh, the second one is teamwork. Uh, the third one is service before self. And the, first, the fourth one is identity. So what we found was that uh, nothing is, is bad everywhere all the time. Uh, it is cyclical. Um, and what we have found was that um, those, those pillars are neither good nor bad. It is always in the way they are expressed. So leadership, for example, is a key pillar that does inform our culture. And that immediately uh, puts us on the track of, of um uh, prioritizing our efforts in how we are developing leaders, how we are developing inclusive leaders, uh, which in turn uh, is, is going to affect the way uh, we express a leadership in the workplace. Okay, let's dig into that. How are you going to train leaders differently now than perhaps in the past? Is, you know, I think uh, when, when you talk about a military leader, you're thinking about military strategic competency. What else are you going to add into that formula? What we want to aim for is character development. So technical competencies, of course, is important, uh, but we really want to aim uh, on, on the character piece because character is what, involve, is what uh, informs judgment. So what does that mean in concrete term is that we are focusing our efforts as a priority in the basic level schools and how we deliver uh, training at the basic level and how we socialize new members uh, in the forces. And the second aspect is in terms of leadership development, um, 
Um, we are aiming towards initially um, develop inclusive behaviors. So started last year, uh, we have uh, now um, evaluated, we are evaluating our leaders on inclusive behaviors. And this past year was the first year where we are actually uh, debriefing people in that space and then developing them towards that via uh, coaching programs uh, via leadership support teams and other tools uh, to enable that change to happen. Now, I know the one concrete attempt. You, you, you talk about uh, people being uh, essentially ingratiated into, into the military culture. And I know one attempt to address uh, at least one problem, the, that of sexual assault, that military leaders were thinking of limiting the amount of alcohol members can consume during certain events. Does the military have a drinking problem? Is this what you're trying to address there? So the military doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, we are existing as part of our of our society, and and uh, as we all know, alcohol has been part of our uh, social environments. Uh, so I think the key word here is adapting to our context, um, and the military has adapted. Uh, their uh, drinking habits and postures and approaches over the past many, many years. As an example, um, uh, drinking is not is definitely um, um, restricted uh, on on uh, at the various uh, activities that we do organize, and it has been so for the past thirty years. Um, so it's, and, it's yet, and yet, the military was talking about the tie between drinking and sexual assault in a number of the cases that have kind of come up within Canadian forces. So there is a link uh, between uh, um, sexual misconduct and alcohol, and it's an, it's an important factor to consider for commanders who are um, um, overseeing the work and, and, the, um, and, and, and how people are operating and working together. So um, it is broader than uh, alcohol. There are many more factors that are involved, uh, such as age, such as power relations between ranks, uh, power dynamics, uh, as well as location as to where those um, the incidents actually happen. So many, many more factors are involved into sexual misconduct, of which one uh, we do observe a trend, which is why uh, we do enable commanders with those data uh, so that they can make the appropriate uh, decisions and actually uh, design events uh, with that in mind. So why not just ban alcohol? I, because it, it would not be appropriate in some instances. So uh, as, as we all know, uh, military members work and live together, which is a bit of a difference than what we normally encounter. So when, when your home is on the base, uh, it would be inappropriate. And, and again, a one-size-fits-all would not be appropriate for that. And frankly, um, the vast majority of our military members who we entrust in serving in countries do actually um, uh, drink responsibly and consume alcohol in a very responsible manner. So again, a one-size-fits-all uh, would not be appropriate. But I have to reemphasize that point that uh, currently uh, alcohol is restricted on the many, many um, events or many um, um, things that we do, such as uh, operations, exercises, 
um, formal uh, events that we organize, uh, like that the alcohol consumption is definitely restricted and, and it has been for many years. General, thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Michael. And that is our program for this Monday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Up next is Listen Sale this week with Julie Van Dusen. We'll see you again tomorrow night.